weeks, and we looked at the topic of suffering, and we'll probably come back that, to that again because it seems like something that hits us all, all the time, things that are difficult that we don't understand. Uh, but we're going to take a little bit of a turn back into the spiritual disciplines, and we've been talking about study uh, in the past few weeks, and we're going to look at study in the light of worship. Uh, but just to kind of recap where we were last week and what we've talked about with suffering, uh, that there's certain things that we need to have perspectives on, that if we have them when suffering strikes or we're in the midst of it, um, that will help us. And we said that there's a couple different worlds that we need to understand to have a theology of suffering. And one was the world that God made, that it was good, that suffering wasn't God's plan. He's not an angry God saying, I'm going to afflict you. I'm going to cause suffering uh, just because I can. He made a good world where suffering was not to be a part of it, that the suffering that we experience is kind of self-imposed. We changed the world from the way God made it. But because God loves us in his grace and mercy and the world in which he lives never changed because of our decision, that he has given us an opportunity to be born into his world once again, to, to experience his harmony, his peace, to have confidence that he is going to take our suffering and redeem it. Which brings us to the point that we were last week where we have to understand what our desires are. Do we want God or do we want just happiness right here and now? Do I want to be delivered just because I'm my own God and I want to be happy? Or am I willing to let God choose the way I am delivered? Whether it be right now in a miracle or it be later on when I see him face to face, am I okay with that and living from eternity? And finally, we wrapped it up by saying that we need to understand each other in the body of Christ that he saved us, placed us into his body to help each other, to be there and to come to church with eyes wide open so that we would be able to see beyond what we're doing. And I've probably had it happen before where you come to church and it's like a whirlwind of activity. You're trying to get this. And the person who's usually never on time is still never on time. And the person who's always on time is there being on time. And they're like, ah. And especially if you have children, you know what it can be like sometimes getting to church and all that can go into that and all of those kind of things that take place. And sometimes when we get here, it's not always natural to be looking beyond myself. You have things you're going to do today, plans, uh, you have heartaches of your own. And it's easy sometimes to have our eyes just thinking about what I got to do and what's going on. Uh, but to come with eyes wide open to say, you know what, I'm part of the body, and if one part hurts, we're all hurting. That there's something that we can do to help each other, even when I'm hurting as well. So as we take the corner, turn back into the concept of a spiritual discipline, these are the things that bring us to a place where we can see God and his grace, where we can experience his grace. It kind of breaks us free from the monotony of the world that we live in and all the things that would pull on our hearts and brings us to a place where we're in his presence so his grace can change who we are and what we do. The one we've looked at most recently was the topic of study, and that's engaging our minds with the objective word of God to take that order into ourselves, enabling us to be in sync with reality in a way that is good for us and others. 
Anybody here have a body that gets out of sync once in a while? And you're just not lined properly. So Angie, what do you do when you're not aligned properly? You go to a chiropractor. Yeah, what do you do when you have, you're not right? Okay, good, good. <laughs> you see, we, we go someplace to get realigned, to get put back in order. We are born out of sync. Uh, our lives are out of sync. Study of the scripture is the only way to know and understand what normal is supposed to look like. Um, you, you've heard joking and people talk about, well, that's not normal. And they say, well, there's nobody normal in our family. Uh, and that's probably true of most families. But normal is not defined by the majority of Americans. It's not defined by popular opinion. Normal is defined by the God's word. What are we supposed to look like? What's supposed to rule my heart? And that comes through the study of the scripture. Without the Bible, it's a free-for-all. We are just floating out there, and it's every man for a woman for himself, doing whatever he thinks or she thinks is the right thing to do. The Bible is the anchor. So as we study it, we've looked at a couple things. We've looked at the role of the Spirit of God that works within us as in no other piece of literature because God lives in these pages of his Bible. And we've also looked at the sweat part of Bible study where I need to get into it to begin to understand and, and, and put effort into the study of the Word of God. A couple starting blocks. One was prayer. Don't read your Bible without God's spirit is what guides us into truth. But we also said for your mind, and we had that phrase, never read a Bible verse, uh, that you should read a couple because of context. And context had, had a lot of different things to it, and I believe this should be in your notes as well, that when you say something, we automatically place it in a context to give meaning to it. Without the context, it doesn't mean anything whatsoever. And those are the events and details that bring meaning and clarity. The Bible has a context. It was written to a group of people that we don't necessarily understand. Their cultures and customs were different than ours. Uh, to give an illustration of culture and, and context and custom, look at this sentence up here and let's see what that means to some of us. The cowboys are going up to the frozen tundra to melt the cheese heads. How many of you, that means nothing? You're like, what in the world? Now, those of you that know context and how things fit together, what's really happening in that sentence? Going to Green Bay. You got it. There's a context to that. Now, if you were reading a book and you took this to some other place and they saw that sentence, they, what in the world are you talking about? You see, there's several helps that are out there as we study the scriptures to get us to know the context, social context, what's happening in the area. There's a book called Manners and Customs of Bible Lands and things like that that help us get out of where we think, what we think we know when we read the verse and to understand the mind and the thoughts of the people of the day. Many of you know that there was a, a tornado that touched down, down in Nashville. And um, our daughter used to, our daughter Allie lived in Nashville. She's in Georgia now. So she was texting us because she knew some of the places and some of the places she ate are not there any longer. And she said this in her text message about where the tornado hit. She lists a couple places and she says, a private airport we shot at frequently. 
my daughter is not a terrorist. But she said, we shot at frequently. Now, there needs to be a context to that statement. And how many of you know what Allie does? She's a graphic designer. She does works on TV shows and things. So they shot at the airport. They didn't shoot the airport. You see, it's context. It brings knowledge of what's going on and gives meaning to what's taking place. So as we study the scripture, we've got to look at those kind of things to make sure we understand what the Bible's talking about, what's going on. Now, as you do that, um, I want to liken it to... Let's say we went to one of Mantalona's fine restaurants afterwards, and, and somebody here is going to treat. Who wants to pay for lunch? Okay, Rick, Rick Westerhoff. Everybody pointed to you too, Rick. Way, way to go. So we're going to hit Shirley's or the Iron Skillet, and, and imagine the waitress coming up to you and saying, okay, would you like your food pre-chewed, or would you like to chew it yourself? Now, depending upon your dentures, you may have a different choice in how you want that to go. And you would probably say, I think I'd like to chew it myself. Or if they came up and said to you, how would you like your meal? Can we feed you or do you want to feed yourself? Now, I've seen some of you eat. Somebody probably should feed you. But it's like when I grow up and I get a little older, I should be able to feed myself, chew my own food. And that's the whole idea of Bible study, that as we grow in the Lord, we should know more of his word and be able to feed ourselves, not depend on Sunday morning pre-chewed, pre-fed, or my favorite podcast or my radio show, that I spend time myself in the word of God. And as we turn the corner and talk about worship, I want to use some of these Bible study principles to help inform us what worship is really supposed to be. Because if you have an idea of worship this morning, uh, for many people, it's what they grew up with. Did anybody here grow up in a more liturgical form of worship? Yes? Okay. So as you think of worship, your mind might go there right away. How many of you grew up with no worship at all? You just didn't go to church. So you just did your own thing. So your idea could be very different. How many of you grew up in a uh, more relaxed kind of worship that was more perhaps emotional, emotional and responsive, that kind of thing? So when you think of worship, your mind might go right to there. But you see, worship isn't, according to God's word, some external practice or have one little kind of way you're supposed to do it. God lets us know about worship and how it is that we're supposed to approach him. And studying of the scriptures help us know how God wants us to come to him. So when we think about worship, have any of you ever been bored? Just bored? I remember as a teenager, church, I was there every single week. Our, it wasn't ever, a de, it was no debate in our family if you're going to get up to go to church. We just went to church. But I can think about my attitudes towards worship. When I was real young, worship was about candy. Because there was this lady that, that really thought I was cute. She didn't know what I was really like. And she'd bring this big bag of candy every week. So I'd be in church just craning my head, waiting for the candy lady to come. As I got older and she stopped giving me candy, I guess I started to know who I really was, it became about friends and passing notes. And this was all during worship. And I, was, you know, I could be doing all different kinds of things, being fidgety. 
because the objects and pursuit of my heart were very different than what was going on at church. We, got, we had a, a knotty pine ceiling in our church, tongue and groove, kind of like we have in Fellowship Hall. Well, my friend and I, we would just kind of sit there and lean back and count the knots to see, and then we would count them the next week just in case we missed a knot from the week before. And you're like, did you really? That's what you did during church? I have a feeling I'm not all that different than a lot of other people growing up. And even now, when it's time to worship the Lord, our hearts can go other places, our mind can fade, and it's not always easy, and sometimes we're bored uh, when it comes to knowing the Word of God and to be able to worship the Lord. But I want us to think of worship a little differently than I did as a teenager, and to imagine a source of pleasure that is, is and always will be deep enough to satisfy your heart forever. We get bored on all kinds of things. We'll do something for a little while, and we really like it, and we get bored of it. We want to go and move on. Could you imagine if there were a pursuit that, if properly understood, was deep enough and big enough to satisfy us all day long and satisfy us forever, that we would never be bored? That is not how I saw worship as a kid. When I thought about going to heaven, and I said, when we get to heaven, we're going to worship God all day. No way. <laughs> Are you serious? Does that mean there's going to be a man up front preaching and we're going to sing a few songs and when he's done, we'll sing a few more and then somebody else is going to get up and talk? I, I was like, I want to go to heaven because it beats hell, but I wasn't too excited about it. I'm like, really? Worship all day long? I mean, are we going to have fun? Isn't there going to be something to do? And it wasn't until later on as, as I understood the worship of God and the excitement and adventure that God has for us and how deep he is, that in him there is a pleasure that I would never get bored of, that I began to become excited and understand worship for what it is. So a couple introductory thoughts, and then we're going to take a survey of the scripture. The heart of worship is that we were created to be satisfied and purpose-filled. We were created with desire. We were created with, with wanting something. And that wanting part of us was satisfied by God. We were here to be purpose-filled. And when you take those things away, our heart is sick. When we don't have a purpose or we don't understand our purpose or when we don't, um, we're dissatisfied, something cries out with us within us, this isn't how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be better. This isn't right what's going on. So the first thing is we're created to be satisfied by God, satisfied and purpose-filled. And to achieve this sense of satisfaction and purpose, we're going to extend all that we are and have. You see some people living a life of destruction, but they're doing it with all that they have. And they're going after it because they believed a lie and they think that satisfaction and purpose are going to come if I go after this headlong. Now, there's people that do it in more sophisticated ways. They could be the workaholic. They could be the person who wants power. They want to be liked by everybody. Whatever they happen to deem that will give them that satisfaction and purpose, we will extend it because our heart craves it. We want it. We need it. And then finally, whatever or the object of that pursuit is what or who I worship. When I think something will satisfy 
and give me purpose. I will dedicate my heart to it. I will worship that. So we want to apply some principles of Bible study to the scriptures as a whole and say, what does the whole Bible say about approaching God, being satisfied in him, finding our purpose in him? And we want to apply what's called biblical theology as for one kind of Bible study, in case you've heard of that word, and, and let that provide a foundation for worship and worship is. Uh, two things that are often missing from Bible study are something called placement, and we've already talked about context. What's the context of this verse? But in the whole big story of the Bible, where am I, and when I'm reading something, where am I? Where am I placed? As we live here today, where is this church in the whole big story of the Bible? It's easy sometimes as you grow up in a church or you, you pick the Bible up and you look at a couple pieces here and there and then you turn over and you look over there and, and you think, wow, the Bible is 66 stories. And some of these stories, I just don't get them, so I don't read them, but we don't see the Bible as one big book, as one big story. And I want us to kind of look at the big story of the scripture, and I got a quick 60-second little video that tells you the whole Bible in 60 seconds to help illustrate the storyline of the Bible, that it's one unity, so that every book unfolds itself into a bigger and greater story. Sixty-six books, dozens of authors, a holy canon thousands of years in the making. Consider the works, accounts of history and law, prophecy and poetry, verses of wisdom and letters from friends. Now, look again, what do you see? Behind the fallen creation, where the first son Adam led all humanity astray, there is the faithful son, a new Adam who fulfills the promise and crushes the serpent's head. In the waters of the flood, just as God used Noah to save his family from judgment, there is a greater vessel by which all God's children are saved. On the altar of desperation, just as Isaac asked his father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice, comes the answer from the wilderness, behold the lamb. For a thirsty people, just as Moses struck the rock in the wilderness, there is a rock whose living water satisfies forever. In the battle against Goliath, where an unlikely king became a champion for his people, we see the shadow of a greater king who defeats sin and death to claim our victory. In the long exile of a people, Isaiah's eyes were opened to a vision of salvation and the eternal journey of God's people to the promised land. Until finally, in humble manger lay the hope of the world, the king who reigns from a throne of straw to Calvary's cross to the deathless tomb of eternal Easter. Every story casts his shadow, every word Every verse bears his testimony. The Holy Messiah, Jesus Christ, eternal King. This is the Gospel Project. If you've heard of the Gospel Project, that is the 
material that our youth use, and they're going through that to see the Bible as one unified book. So as we think about the Bible being a big story, this verse in Hebrews comes to mind long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke through our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see, in that Bible story, God has revealed himself in a progressive kind of way. If you were back in the time of David, you did not understand everything that we have in the New Testament because it didn't happen yet. God showed himself and revealed himself, and every story of the Bible, every bit of the Bible, is placed in a specific context of time. And those two key words I'm talking about, placement and context, to understand worship. We want to take a look at it and say, what is the context of the scripture, and how is worship placed through the whole story of the Bible? Um, anybody bring a sheep to sacrifice this morning at all? I could use some spare ribs if you've got something. We'll cook it up. You, know, we, you didn't come with an animal to worship today. Well, why not? Well, our placement in the story is in a different place than when they would bring animals to sacrifice, and that's the concept behind it. You see, in that big story, there's a couple themes that go through it. Some have identified 20 major themes that go through all of the scripture. And then 50 to 70 kind of like minor themes or trajectories off of that. So I just want to quickly for reference, and if you have your little chart notes, you can take that out, and look at the chronology of the Bible to understand the concept that I'm talking about. You see, everything as far as a book of the Bible does one of two things. It either carries the story along or it speaks into the story at a specific place. So if you look at the big thing, we're going to, instead of calling this a chronology, I want to use some terms that we're more familiar with. We're going to call this our top-notch trunk line, okay? Got that? Trunk line? Zach, what's a trunk line? Exactly. It's a trunk line. It's the thing in an event system that's the main deal that carries it along. All the stuff that comes off of that goes in different directions. They're smaller trajectories. So if you look at Genesis, Exodus, and all of these all the way through Nehemiah, that's the trunk line of the Old Testament. That's what carries the story along. All of these other books speak into the story. So as you're reading the scriptures, it's something that might help you understand the Bible to say, if I want to see how things fit, the order that things are going, then I want to read along the trunk line. These other things have a purpose, but they speak into the story. The same thing is true of the New Testament. There's a trunk line. There's a story that tells us the whole plan of God that he's revealed us and what we're supposed to glean from. The other books of the Bible, were at a specific time, they speak into the story. It's very important to understand that in the scripture, that it's one big book. It has a message, and Jesus is one of the major themes. Some of the other ones are Jerusalem. It's huge through the whole scripture. The temple that we're going to look at for in a few minutes now and then pick that up next week. The, the theme of city or sacrifice, redemption, priesthood, Messiah, wisdom, law, spirit, the exodus, uh, the day of the Lord, the people of God. They're all 
themes that run through all these individual books, but they carry the whole message of God. And to understand it appropriately, we look at the big picture and the whole story that God has. Uh, you'll see on that chart that I gave you, there's a couple websites there. I highly encourage you, if you're on a Bible reading plan and you're trying to read through the scriptures, is to go to Bible.com and before you read a book, take a look at this usually seven to eight minute video. And in that, it gives you the story. It tells you the big picture of that book and often will insert it for you into the big story of the Bible so that our understanding of scripture is big story not just piecemeal now I hate to show another video but I'm going to show you just a couple minutes of one of these kind of videos that I'm talking about because it will help you I think in your Bible study tremendously it's uh, this is Ezekiel because the part that I want to show you talks a little bit about temple it's going to develop next week's sermon a little bit more but but to give you an idea of a tool that you can use all the time in your scripture to help you with the story part of the Bible the book of the prophet Ezekiel Ezekiel was a priest who had been living in Jerusalem during the first Babylonian attack on the city and they spared the city but they took a first wave of Israelite prisoners and hauled them off into exile and Ezekiel was among them. So the book begins five years after all that and Ezekiel is sitting on the bank of an irrigation canal near his Israelite refugee camp and it's his 30th birthday no less, the year that he would have been installed as a priest in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, Ezekiel has this vision. He sees a storm cloud approaching. And then inside the cloud are four strange creatures that have wings outstretched and touching each other. And these creatures each had four faces. And then he saw four wheels, one by each creature. And then he saw that the wings of the creatures were supporting this dazzling platform. And then on that platform is a throne. And then sitting on that throne is this human-like creature glowing and shrouded in fire. And then all of a sudden Ezekiel realizes what he's seeing. He calls it the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's God riding his royal throne chariot. Now the word glory, in Hebrew it's kavod, it means heavy or significant. The biblical authors use this word to describe the physical appearance and manifestation of God's significance when he shows up in person. These images in the vision, they're very similar to what happened when God appeared on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And it's also very similar to the depictions of God's presence over the Ark of the Covenant. And that's actually the most shocking thing about Ezekiel's vision. What is God's glory doing in Babylon? It's supposed to be above the Ark of the Covenant, in the temple, in Jerusalem. And so the first section of the book opens. Give you a quick idea. Use that tool, and if you want to see what it looks like, I've got a, a poster book on the back table that you can open up and show, see what a completed picture looks like for each book of the Bible. Uh, it pulls it together. You may have learned more about Ezekiel than you ever knew before, just in two minutes, because it helps paint the picture that the scriptures are painting for us. So use it. It's a good tool. Uh, but in these themes, as we talk about worship and want to understand biblical worship, the temple and God's glory set the stage. So we're going to take a quick journey, and we're just going to dabble in it today, but we're going to look at the idea of temple and city as it's developed through the scriptures and how it changes because there's a couple things that are true about this, this temple thread. One of the things about the temple 
is it was a place of God's presence and his glory. God was there in his temple in a different way than he filled the whole of creation. And his presence was glorious. It's one thing to be present. That's a good thing. It's another thing to be present and glorious at the same time. There could be somebody present in your house, but when they leave, you're like, I thought they'd never leave. It wasn't a glorious presence necessarily. It was just a presence. And as you saw in that short video, God's presence, God's glory is his weight, the significance of his person. He throws his weight around, we often say. This is when somebody has some significance and they come into a situation, they come in with power. So in the temple, that was the place, the sanctuary where people would come to meet God. This is a depiction of the Ark of the Covenant. We'll develop that more next week. But the other thing about a temple that was a big deal was how does a sinful person approach a holy God after those people have sinned and rejected him? How can I get back to a place where I'm part of him, where I have harmony, I know I'm forgiven, I have peace, where I have a God who can help me in my suffering and help me in my difficulties? How do you make that connection again? Worship is about being connected to God's glorious presence. So our journey in temple is the idea of God, his glory, and me. How do we meet, and what does that do when that meeting takes place? And that is what worship is all about. So we're going to go back to the first temple, and some of you are thinking, well, it's probably about Solomon. Not really. It's the Garden of Eden, the picture of what really was God's first place of presence the place where his glory was. And as you look through the story of, of Genesis and the Garden of Eden, there's a couple elements of it that cry out temple, God's presence, God's place to be met with. And we're going to just list a couple of them, and then we're going to jump to the end of the trunk line and see how the Bible ends. So as it begins, it begins as God's glorious presence in the garden temple. And the first thing about it is that there's a city vision. What did God tell Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and that's having kids. That's growing. And it's interesting that it never calls Eden a city, but you get the idea that God wants his name to be upon this area and Fill it with godly people who love him and enjoy his presence. It's interesting, after the fall, if you look at the scriptures as it, it develops the story, you see Cain, one of the first things he does is he wants to have a city. But he doesn't call it the city of God. I'm going to call it kind of after myself. I'm going to call it the city of Enoch. And what do they do a little bit later in Genesis when they're showing their rejection of God? They build a city called Babel or Babylon to reach God and put their name on the city. But the Garden City, it was to be something that God had for his people with his name upon it. So there's a city vision, but there's also the tree of life, that potential to give immortality, to stop to, to not make sure that suffering or decay is not 
present. Doesn't tell us a lot about the tree of life uh, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, but we're going to look at it in a minute because it shows up again in another temple in another place. But the the <clears throat> sustaining life-giving glory of God as revealed in the tree of life. Uh, Genesis 2:9 says, "Out of the ground, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food." The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So you've got this idea where God wants to create a place of worship that that gets filled with people. The tree of life is there to keep it to be a place of of, um, harmony, of goodness, where decay does not enter. Then there's also a river in Genesis 2.10, that flows out of it, and it gives life, and it waters the land. And if you're a kind of person that likes lakefront property, uh, this is the place to be, where God's glorious presence is there, and and this tree, and this river, and, and this place of harmony, where everything is as it ought to be. Then you see creation of people. And it says in the scriptures in Genesis 2.15 that we are given the task of working and keeping the garden. And it's kind of interesting when you look at those verbs that are used there. Those two verbs in Hebrew are the same verbs used as the Levitical priests as they operated in the temple. So we're not just there to be gardeners. And some of you probably would just be happy with that and you're mad that I just said gardener because like I'm not demeaning that, but it's much grander than that. We were given a a place to be a vice regent, so to speak, in this kingdom place of God's presence. And he gave us a holy task to care for the creation, to care for everything that was there. It wasn't just something to do to keep you busy in your spare time. It was part of worship in the presence of God, priestly vice regents. Uh, guardians of the sacred place, not just keeping the garden. And that really has never been rescinded. That is still what God has called us to do in this world. And then we see that God rested. The seventh day, he rested from all of his labors. And it's interesting, that word rest doesn't mean God was tired. Many of you, at the end of the day, you want to enter rest because you're beat. You want to check out. You want to sit down. Well, God wasn't exhausted. It wasn't as if he needed rest all of a sudden. But in reality, this word for rest is used in other literature to describe even in a pagan setting what it meant when a temple was built and the God came in and he rested upon it. Basically, it means he sat down on the throne. He sat in residence over it. He was done. He was finished. He went to the helm of the ship, so to speak. So God, when he creates the garden city that he desires and he puts the people in it, he commissions them as his priest. He then sits down and he rests to take up residence in this grand and glorious place. God rested. And it's also a place of his presence. I would love to have been there, and I let my imagination sometimes imagine what it meant when it says that God would walk 
in the cool of the day as if he was their friend. And he would come along and Adam and Eve in innocence would see God, and, and I don't know what that would have looked like, how it would have been, but to have that kind of presence that, oh, the Lord's here, let's talk. Let, let's share. Let's see what we've done as, as he's commissioned us. Let's share with him our work. And that whole kind of fellowship and harmony with God, none of us can really understand it. But you see, worship at its base looks back at a time where there was harmony in God's presence, perfect fellowship. Worship is the thing we're going to see brings us back to a place of harmony with him where his presence is very real and very exciting. In his presence, in Genesis 3.8, they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It was his weight, his physical presence, that face-to-faceness, the approachability of God. But if you know the story of Scripture, the choice came. Worship ended. The experience of God's presence all of a sudden was very different. And they hid from God because they knew they were naked. A self-awareness had come in. A change had happened. And all of a sudden, harmony was gone. Things had changed completely. And that tree of life, that was there to keep suffering away and make sure there was no decay, all of a sudden became a a guarded tree, a tree that you could not benefit from any longer. So our choice put us in a place where we were suffering, where difficulty, where worship was not even possible anymore because of the separation of the sin that we had chosen. Now, one element now that will enter worship that was never there before, was sacrifice. Sacrifice became part of worship. It wasn't required before because sin wasn't in the picture. But because of our choice and the sin of our hearts, we're disconnected from God. We need to have something happen in order for worship to be restored again. Genesis says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. Separated from God without hope, but on your own, read Genesis 3.15, because no, no sooner had this sin happened that God says, well, wait a minute, I, I want you to know there's hope. There's going to be a savior. There's going to be a way to, to get back into that place of worship again. Fast forward the story. Garden temple, the holy presence of God. Go to the end of the trunk line. What does the Bible say will be our destiny? It talks about a place called the New Jerusalem. Everything that God had intended to happen in the garden, he says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something in the middle of the story that's going to make the end of the story what the beginning of the story should have been. Hope you followed that. And, and that, that when it happens, it will be all the grandeur and glory that I had intended for humanity 
from the very beginning. The scriptures say, behold, that's two beholds in one sermon. Behold, <clears throat> excuse me, I heard, a loud, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God, his presence is with man. We have lost that. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Those things, those three things that were supposed to be part of us will one day be provided again in the new Jerusalem. God will take us back to him, but it won't be without sacrifice. There will be something that has to take place in the person of Jesus Christ, and the whole story of the Bible develops that, saying here's what it was supposed to be, Here's what it's going to be, and this is how it happens. And that is the beauty of the scriptures. As we think about this new Jerusalem, the tree of life, the only other place in the Bible that talks about the tree of life is right here. And it's as if God is saying, I'm not going to guard this anymore. All your suffering, all of death, and all of decay will be put away. Whatever situation we have in front of us, God has provided a way to be able to be back in fellowship with him, to begin the story to connect us with him again. The new Jerusalem, where the citizens enjoy an environment transformed by his weighty glory and radiant presence. His presence and glory and approach to him restored all over again. I want to read a little bit about that as we close and just read the, the description of, of this, this uh, new Jerusalem, this city of God. But as I read it, I want you to think about everything that you just wrote down about the Garden of Eden and, and kind of overlay them over top of each other to see how they look. Revelation 21, I'm going to start in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Everything we think about the sun providing, plants can't grow without it, people can't grow without it, don't need a sun. Nourishment and sustenance comes from God himself. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth, and it's talking about us, will bring their glory into it. So in other words, the vice regents have returned, and they have work to do, and they will be bringing it to God. So if you think in eternity you're not going to have anything to do, no, you're going to be busy. God will have us occupied in worship of him. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring their glory into it and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, not, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life and its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations 
No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be, and night will be no more. They will, they will not need a lamp or the sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Creation, harmony, connected to the God without suffering. Enter our choice, no one's at all. Worship stops. The story of the scripture is all is not lost. There is hope for people. And at the very end of the trunk line, God says, I will fix it all. I will redeem every bit of it. How the ends connect is the story of worship. And the sacrifice of God, and as we develop this more next week, it kind of shows us our placement in the story. Because there's a whole Old Testament that gives picture to who Jesus is and what he's going to do to restore worship. And in the New Testament, it gives a picture of where that temple is today. I just want to ask you one question as we close and just kind of laying some groundwork today. Do you, in your own life, are you connected back to God? That is the story of Scripture. People who have been lost, a Savior who came to find them, people who again have to make a choice. Will I accept what he has given? That which was rejected in Adam and Eve. Will I bend my knee to the cross? Will I come to him and take all of my sin and give it to him as the sin bearer and allow him to change me from the inside out? Or will I continue to be disconnected? The tree of life as a theme through the scripture. That thing that makes an end to suffering, an end to pain. And it's there for anyone who wants to come and accept Jesus Christ as the payment for their sin to make a choice for God. But as we worship today, hopefully you can spend some time this week and think through what does the temple mean? How many temples are there in Scripture? If there's a one kind of at the beginning and one kind of at the end, how many can I find and who are they and where do they belong? And how does God meet with each person in each of those temples? We're going to put that together. Today, worship the Lord in your heart and in all that you are. And if you are separated from him today, you don't have to leave this sanctuary with that fact still the same. You can be part of him and begin a new life of worship. Father, I thank you that you did not leave us alone, that when we were astray and going our own way, you came into the picture, and you, you saved us. You, you paved the way of salvation for us to be able to come back to you. Lord, help us in each of us to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we live connected to you, that that new Jerusalem is our hope that we we look forward and we're like abraham we look for that city whose builder and maker is god lord if we're here this morning and don't know that as a fact help us to make that decision to accept you lord if we do know you 
Help us to deepen our understanding of the sacrifice that you have made to pave the way for worship. In Jesus' name, amen.